love Carla, so appreciate her sharing her story with us and looking forward to having her join our team in that interim year while Anne is traveling. I want to tell you about three different people, and the first is Jerry. Jerry is 33, a successful businessman, uh, but if Jerry is honest, he's going to tell you that he just feels out of sync. He's speeding through time zones in his work, never feeling caught up, burning the candle at both ends, rushing into meetings breathless. If he's honest with you, he would say, this is not the life I imagined. Mary is the second person. She's a stay-at-home mom with three kids. And if she's honest with you, she will tell you she feels like her entire life has been put on hold. She would tell you this is not the life she imagined when she was a senior in college and engaged to the man she's now married to. If she's really honest with you, she would say her heart on the inside is a mess, even though everything looks good on the outside. Because on the inside, she secretly resents her children for disrupting her life. The minute she tells you that, though, she is completely consumed with guilt and wants to take back the words. Third is Paula and Jim. Paula and Jim have a dual career marriage. They're both working. Both make good incomes. They're influential leaders in their church. They lead a small group every Thursday night. But if they get honest with you, they would say there has got to be more to the Christian life than what we've been told. Like we are trying to do everything right We're going to church, we're tithing, we're leading, but we are so bone-tired and we feel lost inside. If they were honest with you, they would say, we're afraid to tell anyone how empty and desperate we feel on the inside sometimes because people are looking to us as leaders for the answers. And lastly is Barry. Nothing of great external crisis is going on in Barry's life, but inside he is desperate and he's despairing. He would say he feels like the Bible and Christianity have kind of overpromised and underdelivered in his life. He would say he's looking for satisfaction to, for a rewarding, fulfilling life, but he just feels disillusioned and lost inside. Today we're starting this new series called Soulful Living, and we're talking about how Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and life to the full. And yet, all too often as followers of God in the way of Jesus, it seems like we have often lost something on our journey towards heaven. And it is life that we have lost. This series that we're starting, it's really a series about soul recovery. And the word recover should be a word that gives us hope. It's a word that uh, comes from a Latin word that means to recuperate. Recover to recuperate. 
And what do we need to recuperate? Our hearts that we have lost. We need to get better, otherwise what will happen is we will only go through life surviving. And the good news that Jesus invites us into, the good news of the gospel of God, is that we are invited to live life a different way. So the soulful life is not a list of like spiritual tasks that God's going to micromanage in our lives. It is a life that is flowing and overflowing with communion with God's spirit. So think about it this way. The soulful life is patient, not hurried. Peaceful, not anxious. The soulful life is attentive, not constantly distracted. It is a life overflowing with love, with love, not a life snatching for approval at every turn. Soulful living is about creating that space in which something can happen, something that you didn't plan, something that you weren't counting on. It is about living life from the overflow. There's a Jewish practice called Havdalah, and what that is is basically a ceremony or celebration around the time of Sabbath each week or Shabbat. So in, uh, for Jewish people, from the time on Friday evening when they see the first three stars in the sky until Saturday evening at sunset when they see the first three stars in the sky, that period is a period of rest, Sabbath, Shabbat. So one of the uh, rituals is to during this time, take a bottle of wine and pour it into a cup until it begins to overflow. This overflow then becomes a picture of how life is to be lived. And rest, Sabbath, Shabbat, becomes a place of filling where God is filling you to the place of overflow so that you and I are not living just productive lives, rushed lives, frantic lives, but rather we are living soulful lives, lives of overflow. Our lives are meant to be lived out of abundance not scarcity. They are meant to be lived out of overflow, not out of a constantly depleted space. And often, we allow ourselves to get into a constantly depleted space. God wants to, desires to fill us to overflow so that we can live out of abundance, not scarcity. But here's the deal. We are only as connected to God as we plan to be. We are only as connected to God and his filling as we plan to be. If you and I are not intentional, the demands of our lives will take over. They will take over and you will live out of exhaustion and scarcity and depletion, and that is not 
soulful living. In his book, The Contemplative Pastor, Eugene Peterson says this, it was a favorite theme of C.S. Lewis that only lazy people work hard. Let that sink in. By lazily abdicating the essential work of deciding and directing, establishing values and setting goals, other people do it for us. Then we find ourselves frantically at the last minute trying to satisfy a half dozen different demands on our time, none of which is essential to our vocation to stave off the disaster of disappointing someone. You know the word discipleship and the word discipline are the same word. Once you have made the choice to follow God in the way of Jesus, the question then becomes, what are the disciplines in your life that will allow you to remain faithful to that choice. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, we have to live disciplined lives. Now, when I say discipline, I do not mean control. Like, often we use the word discipline like, you know, the discipline of psychology or the discipline of economics. That kind of means like you have a mastery of that, you have a certain control over that body of knowledge. Uh, if I want to discipline my children, often that means I want to have a certain level of control over them. And this can be a confusing thing. Have you ever felt this way? Like, wait a minute, I come to church, and one Sunday you're talking about, like, put some effort into spiritual practices so that you can grow closer to God. And the next Sunday you're saying, no, surrender, let go, let God. It's God's doing the work. It's not about you. Like, which one is it? Both and, not either or. Dallas Willard says, God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. So the part you and I play is this part of it is your job and my job to create space to connect with God. And then God does the perfecting in us. There is a work that only God can do that we surrender to, but we play a part in carving out the space and time to connect with God where he can do that work. You do the connecting with God. God does the perfecting of himself in you. But the spiritual life, the word discipline, it really just means the effort to create some space in which God can act. So discipline means preventing everything from your, in your life from being filled up. Discipline means there is somewhere in your life that you're not occupied, you're certainly not preoccupied. Discipline means creating that space where something can happen that you had not planned on, that you had not been counting on. It means creating that space Preventing your life from just filling up with everything and being filled up every minute. So in this series, we are talking about soulful living. The picture is overflow. 
How do you and I become people who live from the overflow, from abundance, not scarcity? And what we're going to look at at in this series is the life of Jesus and three disciplines that allow Jesus to live from the overflow. Those three disciplines can be represented in our graphic. You see the three circles? It starts in the middle with solitude. The ring around that, community. The outer ring, ministry. When I say ministry, I mean like your work in the world. Your ministry, your vocation, your calling, your work in the world. Work, it's just the way in which you make love visible on this planet. Solitude, community, ministry. So these disciplines are the ones we embrace. We build a whole new platform for our lives. Because the frantic always producing, always consuming, always striving, that's not working. And so we're ending up like Jerry, like Mary, like Paul, like the people that we talked about in the beginning. So we're going to say, that's not working. We're building a whole new platform for our lives around these disciplines of solitude, community, ministry. In Luke 6, we read a passage where we see Jesus' commitment to these three disciplines. I'm going to read this. It'll be on the screen. As we read through it together, would you just be thinking, where is Jesus embracing solitude? Where is he embracing community? And where do we see the discipline of ministry in his life? Luke 6, 12 through 19. Now it happened in those days that Jesus went onto the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. When day came, he summoned his disciples and picked out 12 of them and called them apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He then came down with them and stopped at a piece of level ground where there was a large gathering of his disciples. There was a great crowd of people from all parts of Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be cured of their diseases. And people tormented by unclean spirits were also cured. Everyone in the crowd was trying to touch him because power came out of him that cured them all. Do you see it? He went up on the mountain to pray. Solitude. He called the twelve. Community. They came down the mountain, and the crowds were there. His ministry, his work in the world. There's a fabulous article by Henry Nowen where he talks about these three rhythms of solitude, community, and ministry. And he talks about how we need to view them in our lives like a bicycle wheel. So solitude is the hub in the center. The spokes are community. The tire is ministry. And we must start in solitude. The reason we must start here is because in solitude before God, we come to understand our true identity. And if we don't understand and hear from the Father our true identity, then we move out into community looking for our community to give us 
the identity that only we can receive from God. That is not their job. They cannot do it. Even if they attempt, we will ultimately be disappointed. We have to start in solitude and hear the words of who we are in Christ. Then we move out into community. If we start in ministry, same thing. We will be looking for our work in the world to affirm us, to give us an identity that it was never meant to give. And so solitude, community, ministry, we begin first in solitude. Jesus was intentional about times of solitude and community and ministry. Think about this. Jesus, he did not just keep meeting the demands before him. When he died and left this earth, there were still people who needed to be healed. When he ascended into heaven, there were still hungry people. There were still hurting people. The need did not constitute the call for Christ. And the need does not constitute the call for you and I either. Jesus, Son of God, committed himself to solitude, connection with the Father, community, and ministry. Jesus honored Sabbath, a day of rest. He spoke of how Sabbath could get out of whack when it became legalistic and rule-following, but Sabbath was seen as a gift, an acknowledgement really, of resistance in this world. Think about it this way. If you are not intentional, you will eventually crash. Almost like if you imagine downhill skiing. If you are a beginner and you get on the mountain and you point your skis down and you do not do the back and forth pattern, you will pick up speed over time. And when you go too fast, eventually, it is inevitable that you will crash. And the same is true in life. I don't know how it was for you, but when I think about my life, it's like, you know, in, your, in my 20s, I'm like saying yes, saying yes, saying yes. I keep that pattern up through my 30s. At some point, you have to say enough. You have to say no to some things or you will crash. Walter Brueggemann says this, in our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath, is an act of both resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it is a visible insistence that our lives are not defined by the production and consumption of commodity goods. Spiritual growth does not happen by running faster. In fact, what keeps many of us stuck, what keeps us from growing with Christ is not some overt sin. It's just speed. Hurry. Rush. If we want to meet Jesus, we cannot do it on the run. Growing in Christ is not saying, Jesus, come along as I race through life. It is entering his pace, walking with him, his rhythms. And rest is a decision that we make. 
Rest is choosing to do nothing when you have a whole lot to do. And we see Jesus doing that. Slowing down when you feel pressure to go faster. Stopping instead of starting. It is listening to the weariness and responding to the tiredness, not just what is making you tired. And ultimately, we don't, we don't, it's not that we don't know how to rest so much as we are unwilling to do it because it hurts our pride. Like, it's humiliation because in order to rest, you and I have to admit this. We're not necessary. In order to rest, you have to at some point say, the world is going to get along fine without me right now. You have to say, God's work doesn't depend on me. You know, monastic communities are known for developing what is called a rule of life, which is simply writing down a plan for how they are going to live out their days in order to live out of the overflow. So Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove said this, a rule of life is an attempt to put down on paper the way that a small group like a family or a community to put down on paper a way um, a pe people agree to live together so that their every effort moves them closer to God. So here is what I want you and I to consider at the start of this series. How are you structuring your days to live from the overflow. What are you doing so that you can live a soulful life? Not just a productive life, not just an accomplished life, but a soulful life. How are you structuring your days to live from overflow? And here is the deal. Nobody can do this work for you. Nobody can do this work for me. Your church can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your, your boss will not do it for you. Your children certainly will not do this for you. You have to reach a point. I have to reach a point where we say, like, enough. I am not going to run the rat race all, but I'm not going to stay on the hamster wheel. I am going to step off, and you know what? Some balls might get dropped. Some people might get disappointed. But as C.S. Lewis pointed out, it's actually the laziness in us that doesn't do the critical work of deciding, directing our lives that leaves us busy, hurried, frazzled. How are, how are you going to structure your days for maximum joy, contentment, satisfaction in your relationship with God so that you can live from the overflow. And here's the thing. When you and I do this, everybody wins. Not only do you win, but everyone who your life touches wins. Your family wins. Your friends win. Your work wins. Because when we get the best, most soulful, rested, connected you, 
we get the best you. How can you and I structure our days to live from overflow? Often spiritual practices are like associated with you got to leave the chaos of the city and you got to go to the mountain and you got to take three, three days to be alone and pray on the mountaintop. But I think it is equally as important. There's a place for that. But it is equally as important for you and I to consider our everyday rhythms, which always include interruptions and distractions, and that is a part of Christ-likeness. So how can we think about what we are doing already and redeem these everyday rituals from the chaos that seeks to overcome them? How do you and I redeem mealtime? My guess is you're already doing that. How do you redeem car time? You're probably driving somewhere. How do you redeem from the chaos your early morning time and your right before bedtime? How do we redeem those times from the chaos that seeks to overtake them? It's through making commitments, a rule of life, two times. And there's no formula around this, but let me just give you a few ideas. These are just ideas. This past winter, Tim and I and our kids participated in a little dinner group with Justin and Eliza, who are a part of this faith community. And every Monday, we would go to their house. We'd spend about 90 minutes, and we'd always share a meal together. And then we'd sit down. The kids would usually run and play, and then we'd all come and sit at the table after dinner. And we would tell the kids, if you listen through this Bible reading, you'll get a cookie at the end. Never underestimate the power of a cookie. Keep the children quiet for a little bit. But you know what? Our kids, there were four kids and four adults most weeks. The kids were between the ages of two and six. Little. Interrupting. Distractible. But Eliza would just open her Bible, super simple, and read through a passage of Scripture. She'd read through it like two times, and then she'd say, what stood out to you? You don't need a master's degree in theology to, like, open the Bible and read a passage. It was just a picture to me of redeeming mealtime from a place of chaos to, like, a spiritual practice. There's a couple, uh, the Genics, who are part of this community, and they have told me that they will lay in bed at night before falling asleep, and they'll listen to the daily practice which is our three- to five-minute audio file we put out every single day to, um, it's just a little bit of scripture and a little song, like three to five minutes long. They will listen to that before falling asleep. What do most of us do before falling asleep? Watch TV, check the email for the last time. That is just a daily practice rhythm, redeeming what can become the chaos of our lives. I heard of um, this idea, which I think is super cool. If you take a you know, Sabbath, a day or a partial day, where you say, I'm going to dedicate, you know, Saturdays from 9 to noon or whatever it may be, to Sabbath, to rest. I heard this idea of just getting a Sabbath box and putting items in it that you want to rest from during that time. So start of the Sabbath, stick your, maybe your phone in there if you want to rest from your phone. 
Maybe stick your credit cards in there if you want to rest from your spending. Would that be meaningful to you? What about daily chores? Often when we do chores, it's like frantic, run around. But what about every time you go to do the dishes, you just say, I'm going to intentionally use that time as a time to pray. Or every time I vacuum, I'm going to use that as a time to pray. I love, um, Tamara has told me about how she loves to play games with her kids. Games can become a spiritual practice because God is a God of joy. So when you play together, play games or play together, it's, you could just focus on this. is not all about the competition. This is also just about enjoying each other and embracing the joy that God has put in us. Soulful living is about creating that space in which something can happen that you didn't plan on, you didn't count on. It's about living life in the overflow. Embracing rhythms like Jesus did of solitude and community and ministry. At the end of Sabbath, for Jewish people, the end of Shabbat, they will take these three elements as kind of a conclusion to their time of Sabbath. I love this little ritual just from the intentionality that it represents. So after a 24-hour period of rest, they will have three items. One is a cup of wine, a little container of spices, and then this candle, like this braided candle. And at the end of Sabbath, they will first take the wine, and they'll just initially smell it. And in smelling the sweetness of the, the wine, just be reminded that this day, this time of rest, is sweet. So smell the wine. And then, after smelling the wine and just thanking God for the sweetness of Sabbath, they will take these spices, which are quite strong, and smell the spices. And in doing that, just it's a picture of reawakening the senses to the work that God's called you to in the world. You've rested from your work for a day. Now you are returning to your work, and you're reawakening yourself to that vocation, to that calling, to that work. What is work? Just love made visible in the world. You're reawakening yourself to your work in the world. And then lastly, with the flame, they will take their hands and kind of like pull the light towards them and notice the shadows on their fingers. And in doing that, they will just remember God has separated light from dark, day from night, Work from rest, labor from leisure. And they will just remember those separations that God has created. And then lastly, they will take the wine and they'll take a sip of it. And the sip is like a, it's like a remembrance that this rest that has been tasted in part, this union that has been tasted in part, this rest and this union will be experienced for full, in full, for eternity. And I love the intentionality of this. At the end of the day of rest, they'll just take the, the candle and they'll extinguish it. And that's the end of the day of rest. What are you doing to structure your days 
for maximum contentment, joy, and satisfaction in your relationship with God. That is the way that we live from the overflow. That is the way we live from the soul. Let's pray together as we close. And this is my prayer for us this morning from Philippians 1. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled to overflowing with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. All of this to the glory and the praise of God. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.